All right. Hey, everybody. There we go. It's good to see you. My name's Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. And uh, hold on, let me just focus on getting set up. I can't do two things at once. All right. Here we go. All right, it's good to see you. Uh, we're working our way, like Andy said, we're working our way through the book of Philippians. We've been hitting this, really this entire book, kind of verse by verse, trying to go deep into it. And um, last week, what we talked about was how the author, Paul, he talked to us about uh, what is required for us to be accepted by God. He talked about what does it mean to be accepted by God, go to heaven, be blessed by him, be taken care of him, get what you want from him. We talked about that, uh, however kind of you want to use the terminology and since we're kind of working through this, you see the line, of th- <clears throat> the line of thought. If last week what Paul talked to us about is what it means for us to be accepted by God, tonight he, asks, he answers kind of the next logical question. Well, what happens after we've been accepted by God? For some of you, particularly those of you who have kind of a church background, salvation is usually thought of as the end, but Paul really thought of salvation as a beginning, uh, a commencement, an initiation into a brand new way of living. And really he's going to answer the question, kind of from a 10,000 foot view, is what is that life supposed to look like? Like after you've been accepted by God and been changed by his grace, like what is our lives practically meant to be about. Now, the way kind of Paul is going to answer this question is he's going to give us another image that we can relate to. Last week we talked about how he gave the image of a resume. Tonight he's going to give us the image of a race. He's going to say, as you are initiated into this new life of following Jesus, it's much like a race we desire to compete in and complete with excellence. Now, I feel like... um, with all that said, here's kind of the logical point in the sermon where I'm supposed to tell you a funny story about this one time I was in a race uh, in the last few years. Um, but much to my shame, I have nothing like that. Um, because in my four years of living in Denver, I have never competed in a, uh, a, a, an official race, um, which really is really bad because there's a lot of races in Denver. I actually met the guy who organizes all the races in Denver. And in this last year alone, there were 275 in downtown. Or right around downtown. So by my calculations, since I've lived in Denver, there's been around 1,200 races. And uh, I have not competed in a single one. And I don't have a good race story for you. Um, actually, hold on, I take that back. Because when I first moved here, on Tuesday nights, uh, Megan and I, and some of you who were first part of the church when we met in my living room, um, we would go down to Wahoo's on 20th Avenue. And you would get to run a race. It was a 5K. And if you completed it, you got fish tacos at the end. And so I ran that race. Every single week, I ran that race. So I run in races if I get food. If I get rewarded with food and fish tacos at the end, I run those races. But other than that, I've got no race kind of story or illustration or imagery for you. But here's what I do know, in spite of my lack of race experience, is that anytime you compete in a race, you need to be able to answer two key questions. Very, two very important questions. The first is this, is where is it that you're trying to go? What is, where's the finish line? Where is success? What does it mean to complete it and to win, right? I mean, that if you've ever competed in a race, you know there's a starting line, but hopefully the finish line is clearly marked out. It's clearly defined. There's people, there's markers indicating this is the way you're supposed to go because if you didn't have something like that, you know, if everybody bunched up at the starting line, the gun fires, and boom, everybody scatters in different directions, because they don't really know what direction is they're supposed to go in. So you have to know where it is that 
you're trying to get to. Now, the second question you need to be able to answer is not just where you're trying to get to, but what's going to keep you from getting there? What sort of obstacles are going to prevent you from getting there? Now, some of you are a little bit more race savvy than me, and you're like, well, you know, what sort of race has obstacles? You know, it's just you're just running in a straight line. Well, that's where we in Denver kind of understand this better than anybody else, because we're not content with normal races. We have to have mud runs, and we have to have warrior dashes, and we got to have all sorts of crazy things that include barbed wire, because you need the threat of tetanus, you know, along the side of, like, dehydration when you run. I'm not sure why some of you do this, but you do, and you know that when you run, it's not just, you know, you don't just have a destination in mind. There's obstacles that can prevent you from getting to where it is you are supposed to go. So those are two key questions, and I feel kind of better about that in spite of my lack of experience, because that's exactly what Paul is going to say tonight. As he talks about us living a life, running a race, he's going to say, you need to be able to answer two key questions about your life. It's really simple. Where is it that you're trying to go? We're all trying to go somewhere, right? We're all running. You may not realize it, but the gun of our lives have fired when we were born, and we're going in some sort of direction. We're existing for something. We're giving our time, our money, money our passions, our energy. We're, we're, we're existing for something. So what does success look like? What does it mean to win in life? We need to be able to answer that. And then what is going to prevent you from getting there? What sort of obstacles are going to prevent you from kind of living the life that you are supposed to live? And so Paul tonight is going to be tremendously practical, tremendously relevant. If you're here tonight and you're not, you know, super into kind of reading the Bible in depth, I think this is a really great example how theological truth practically impacts the most practical aspects of our lives. And so we're going to just dive right into it, see what he has to say, um, and we'll just work through these two questions. It's pretty simple. The first he's going to say is this, is what is the prize, okay? What is the prize? What does it look like uh, for us? us to win. You know, again, think about this. This is so important for you to understand. What's so important for you to understand before we get started is you are running, right? I mean, what Paul's going to talk about is that uh, all of us, we run for something. So, you know, an Olympic athlete, uh, every four years we have the Olympics where the guys run on the track, and you know they're training, you know, crazy amount of hours, like eight hours a day for the purpose of a vision for the future to say, when I cross the finish line, this is what success looks like. I'm crowned with maybe a gold medal. What Paul's going to say is, You live every day, not just eight hours a day, 24 hours a day existing for something. To cross the finish line, to come to the end of your life, and to receive something. What is that? You have a clearly defined definition of what that looks like. Now, before we jump into that, let's look at verse 12. He kind of goes back to what we talked about last week. Verse 12, he writes this, Not that I've already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, what he's doing is he's responding to what he talked to. He's kind of like reiterating, making the same point over one more time. He's saying, now let me tell you something. Let me, let me remind you, I'm not giving you the same philosophy of thinking of this that every other religion and worldview does. He's returning to you know, that question of like, okay, why do we live good lives? Now, most philosophies, worldviews, religions say the reason I live a good life is so that God will accept me. We said it's like kind of building your resume, you slide it across the table and God says you're in or you're out. You go to heaven or you go to hell. And what we saw last week is that what Paul said is it's not so much about what you do. The heart of Christianity is not about what you do, but receiving what Jesus has done for you. That's the definition of grace, unmerited favor that is showered upon your life through the work of Jesus. And he's saying this, like, I don't want you to think. That's why he says, I do this uh, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Very simply, he's prefacing this saying, I don't want you to do this to earn 
God's favor, but because you've earned God's favor. And then verse 13, he says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. That's an important phrase. You see that right there? One thing I do. When somebody says, you know, especially one of the most historically influential figures in all of history, like the Apostle Paul, one thing I do... Here he goes, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, there's a lot there, so let's just kind of hit it a little bit at a time. Uh, uh, Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. So he's saying, kind of in light of what Jesus has done, I'm thinking about my past differently. I'm not dismissing it. He's very open about what he's done in his past. But he's also saying, this doesn't define me. He says, uh, doing that, I, I, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you see kind of like the race, athletic imagery on there. I press on for a goal. I want a prize. He defines the prize, the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. All right, here's what he's saying. Let's put it in kind of everyday terminology. What Paul is saying is that because Jesus has saved me, I now exist for a singular purpose. Okay, just like an athlete trains for the singular purpose of victory, and in their minds they have an idea of what does that victory look like? What does it mean to win? So Paul says, in my life, Jesus has saved me, and now I have a singular purpose for which I exist. Just as an athlete desires to be crowned, maybe with a gold medal, I desire to be crowned with words more precious than gold from God my creator himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. I exist to to experience and know and dwell and be known by God in the upward call of Jesus Christ. He's saying that everything in his life, so very practically, his work and his time and his sex and his energy and his money and his leisure and his recreation, everything that's very practical in his life is filtered through the lens of whether or not it helps him obtain this goal. Now, as if that weren't enough, here's what he says next. Look at verse 15. He really drives the point home, and he's a little bit like kind of strong with it. He comes on strong. So if I come on strong, it's only because Paul's coming on strong, okay? Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, you see that verse 15 So he's laid it out. He's saying, this is the way I now think about my life. This is the singular purpose for which I exist. He says, but those of us who are mature think this way. Now, that's a really interesting way to say that, right? So what Paul is saying is, okay, here's the singular purpose for which I exist. And there's an immature way of looking at life, and there's a mature way of looking at life. And if you don't kind of look at the finish line of your life from this perspective, he says, it's time to mentally grow up. That's what he's saying. It's a little bit strong. Uh, It can be a little bit offensive, but he's saying that it's time to kind of put off old, kind of childish ways of thinking about the way the world works. Now, as soon as I saw Paul write this, it instantly made me think of um, what might be the funniest podcast I've ever listened to in my entire life. I was listening to this podcast on NPR, and uh, they were interviewing people who had kind of uh, held on to, um, like, childish beliefs like, way too long into their adulthood, and it was totally normal people. So, like, I feel like I could just spend the rest of the time just telling you stories about this. I'm going to try to restrain myself. Um, The funniest one I heard was this girl who somehow made it to about the age of 27, uh, believing that unicorns were a real thing, like they were real. 
And um, she was not crazy or unintelligent. I mean, she had a college degree, a good job. But, like, as a small child, she had been convinced that unicorns were a real thing. And then she grew up, and, like, nobody told her otherwise. And she was like, you know, I mean, like, if zebras exist, I don't understand why, you know, a unicorn can. I don't like, you know, I don't see a zebra every single day. It's just a horn out of a horse's head. You know, a unicorn can be there. And then, you know, so, okay, how did she find out? Well, she told the story of how she found out. I just, I'm just going to read this word for word because I don't, I don't want to do it injustice. She found out at a party with a bunch of her friends that, like, unicorns weren't a real thing. And so here's what she said. Um, she said, uh, I was at this party. It was about a group of five to seven people. We were standing around a keg. And uh, we were just talking. And somehow the discussion of endangered species came up, in which I posed the question, is the unicorn endangered or is it extinct? (laughs) And basically, there was a big gap of silence. And then everybody laughed. And then that laughter was followed by more silence. And then they realized I wasn't laughing. And I was like, oh, my God, unicorns aren't real. Oh, no. (laughs) Now... It's easy for us to hear a story like that and, and kind of understand, like, there's real ramifications where we carry uh, immature beliefs into our adulthood. I mean, can you imagine being this girl where it's like for the rest of her, like, she would have to move somewhere else because, like, anywhere else she would go, any party she showed up to would be like, oh, my gosh, this is Karen, and Karen believed that unicorns were real until, you know, she was almost 30 years old. Everybody would laugh at her expense. There's real ramifications that come with us carrying childish beliefs into adulthood. And it's kind of the exact same point that Paul is making here, too. He's saying there's real ramifications that when we carry immature thinking into adulthood, when you don't think rightly about why it is that you are running the race of life. Now, here's the deal, is that for many of us, we were bombarded in our childhood with immature ways in terms of thinking about what is the prize that we can obtain. So like all of us in this room were products of the MTV generation, and like age 9, 10, when your parents weren't looking, you were probably watching MTV, and you were getting bombarded with a message of like, you know, the reason that I run the race of life is to experience a certain quality of life, to be able to party this certain way, to be able to live this particular lifestyle. Others of us just grew up in environments where maybe parents pushed upon us, imposed upon us somewhat unhealthy ways in terms of understanding what is life all about. It's about having this job title or being able to do this or do that. And what Paul's saying is, look, it's fine. Like, it's fine that you maybe grew up in that environment. It's okay when you were like a little child for you to think that life was all about money or was all about sex or was all about freedom or was all about recreation or was all about having fun. It was okay for you to think that, but it's time to grow up and to think maturely and to understand that you are supposed to run the race of life for something far more substantive than that. So there's ramifications when we carry immature beliefs into our adulthood. I mean, you think there are ramifications for believing that unicorns are real into your mid-20s? I mean, there are far more serious ramifications when you are coming to approach the finish line of life and you recognize that what it is that you were running for was nothing more than an illusion. And so I think, like, let's not just make it kind of cerebral or theoretical, but let's make it practical. I mean, Paul has laid out the one reason for which he exists and lives like the reason he uses his money in a particular way, the, way he, the reason he uses his time in a particular way, the reason he directs his family's energy, it's very limited energy towards a particular thing. And so let's just let's do a little bit of it. Let's just think about this for us. Here, here's what Paul writes. Can we, can we put this on the screen? He says, one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize, and he writes, of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Here's the question I would ask you. Because if you're writing this, if we just did it this way, but one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of 
blank. Like, what would you put in there? Like, what would you write? How would you finish that sentence? If we just kind of, you know, I just randomly, you know, said, you, back there, you come up here, how would you finish that? Like, how would you, what would you put in there? But one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of making as much money as possible or having to work as little as possible so I can have as much freedom as possible. There's one thing I do for the, for the goal, the prize of being safe as possible and being as comfortable as possible. How does kind of the way you would fill in this, like would Paul look at what you said and say that's mature thinking or that's immature thinking? Now hear me very clearly. Like if you put something like, what we're not saying is like everything else that you're passionate about is bad. We're not saying like if you love skiing, it's bad. What we're not saying is if you love your job, that's bad. We're not saying if you give your time to extracurricular activity, like that's bad. Those are really, really good things. What Paul's saying is it's just not meant to be the ultimate thing. It's just not meant to be the ultimate thing. It's not meant to be the thing that receives your chief devotion for which you exist. Like, there's nothing wrong with 401ks. There's nothing wrong with 14ers. But they are not weighty enough to bear your worship and your purpose and you crossing the finish line of your life and feeling like you ran the race of life with excellence. Only God himself can bear that weight. So Paul is saying for some of us, it's time. It's not time to like totally scrap your life and become a monk and live you know, in complete isolation. He's not saying that whatsoever. He's just saying it's time for the good things to become secondary and for the most important thing to become primary and to exist for that. It's a very difficult thing for us to do in Denver because we're distracted by very good secondary things that very soon become ultimate in our lives. And Paul is laying out this challenge and saying, here's what it is that I'm going to exist for. Now, second... He lays out then not just the prize, but also the snare. So here's the goal. That's where I want to get. Uh, and then the snare, like what is going to prevent me or hinder me from uh, getting there? Now, um, yeah, I think I want to do it this way. Um, you know, I struggled kind of all week in terms of how to tackle this because I feel like, probably some of you don't feel this, but I just feel like as I was studying it, I've got to acknowledge this. Um, in the text, before you can kind of just hit, like, here's what Paul tells you to do, I think there's a theological tension that arises in the text. So here's kind of the way I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to hit the theological tension, and then we're going to hit the practical outworking, okay? So I think there's a theological tension, like, what's going to prevent me from getting there? And I want to, let's, let's just get theological, okay? So put on your theological big boy or big girl pants on, and let's do this, okay? Verse 18, Paul writes this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, here's kind of where the theological tension arises, is that last week and and kind of elsewhere when Paul writes, um, Paul kind of talks about how uh, the essence of salvation is it's something that is freely given and cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. The way that sometimes it's talked about in church is that we believe that salvation, when you're saved by God, uh, once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you're saved, you're always saved. So Paul, he didn't dive into that last week, but if you kind of think through the logical outworkings of what he's talking about, okay, like salvation is something that I've earned, and because of that, it's not something I can lose. It's a free gift. It's given upon me elsewhere, like in Ephesians 1. He talks about how the Holy Spirit himself comes and seals us, comes and seals us in our, in our faith, and God, he promises God will finish in us what he started. Like over and over again, he's saying, okay, once you're saved, you're always saved. God's going to finish in you what he started. And then all of a sudden this week, He's telling you about a group of people that seem to claim to once believe, but now they've fallen away. 
mean, you see that there, there's kind of some, like, as I was reading the commentaries on this, scholars are trying to figure out who exactly is he talking about here. But it's kind of the level of emotion. You see this, like, uh, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. You see the emotion there? Like, there are tears on the page as he's writing this letter. It's not kind of like the kind of, like, Paul elsewhere is just like, he's just like, those guys are dumb and they don't follow God. And he's just like kind of a little bit cold and count. But here, he's just like, I knew these people. And like, we were part of the same church together. And they claimed to follow and believe the same things. And now they don't. And not only have they left the church, but now they're now functioning as enemies of the church as well. So you see the theological tension. On one hand, he's saying, once saved, always saved. On the other hand, it's like, well, wait a second. These people who claim to be saved, uh, you're saying they've fallen away. So how do we kind of acknowledge that tension? So that's, I just feel like I have to do it. Um, here, here's kind of what I would say. I think one, I think what you very clearly see throughout the scripture is that just because you're close to Jesus in terms of proximity doesn't mean you're close to Jesus relationally. Does that make sense? Like you look at Judas as a really good example of this, one of the disciples who like hangs out with Jesus for three years and is discipled by him and hangs out with him. And then all of a sudden he's like, I'm going to contribute to his crucifixion. I think you're seeing there that you have the possibility of being in a religious environment, uh, but not necessarily being a believer and follower of Jesus. And that's what I think, like, all the time the media is blowing, you know, like, this person was a pastor, this person grew up in the church, and now they believe this, or they do this. And it's like, when I hear those stories, it's like, it seems to me like you grew up in an environment where a certain belief system was imposed upon you, and then when it became time for you to make that faith your own, it, it just wasn't. It just wasn't. That, and so I think what the Bible teaches is not here, like, uh, I don't think it's arguing against once saved, uh, always saved, and I think it's saying that uh, those who maybe have claimed once they were saved... We're never saved in the first place. Does that make sense? Second, um, what, what was the second thing? I'm just kind of running through this here. I just, my theological aside. Um, yeah, second, I think that what, as we read this, this isn't supposed to be kind of so much, um, I don't know. I think it's easy for some of us in the room, particularly those who are very kind of like obedience driven and kind of very like type A, to read this and be like, oh crap, like, well, what about me? You know, like, am I in? Am I out? Like, am I, have I done enough? And I don't think that's the way you're supposed to respond to this whatsoever. I mean, Paul, over and over again, he says, like, there is a promise of God finishing in you what he started in you. And so you are not supposed to kind of like freak out by this, but rest in who God is and the fact that his grip on your life is a lot of times stronger than your grip on him. A lot of you have experienced this over the past year where like you probably wanted to fall away. Like some of you in this room, like especially for those of you who have suffered tremendously over the last year, for those of you who do life in downtown Denver where following Jesus does not exactly put you at the cool table, at lunch, at work, like I, I get it, okay? Like there's probably been moments where it's been very easy for you to walk away. There would have been moments for you where you even wanted to walk away. And yeah, you're in this room. You're in this unbelievably hot room. You are sweating for the glory of God in this room. Like, why is that? Because the grip of God is tighter on you than yours is on him. And he has sustained you and carried you and kept you from falling away, even in moments where it would have been very easy for you to do that. And so I just feel like that's kind of the theological side. I just feel like I didn't want to just kind of skip that. But here's what Paul then jumps into. He talks about these opponents, talks about these people that have fallen away. And I think he issues us a really good warning as well to say, okay, well, what do we practically then need in our lives to help us run this race with excellence? What is it that we need so we're kind of running in the right direction and we finish well for the glory of God? He gives us three things. The first is this. 
he, gets, he talks about purposeful community. Look at, look at verse 17. He's kind of talking about these uh, opponents, and he's talking around them. He says, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So you see this, what Paul's saying so for us to finish this race with excellence and to run this race with excellence, we need community. Now, not just community. Community is kind of a big buzzword now, and a lot of companies use it to kind of market products and get you, you know, to sign up for a membership for something. And I'm not dismissing that. I think community is a really good thing. But what Paul is saying is you need purposeful community, not just people to hang out with on the weekends, not just people in the same life stage as you. You need men and women in your life who can do this, that you can say that you keep your eyes on those who walk a according to the example you have in us. Now, I'm just going to try to be super practical as, as I'm talking through this and just kind of what I see here as a pastor and in this city. It, it, my observation is a lot of times, you know, I'm just trying to think, um, just there's people in this room and there's many of you who are like, I'm not sure kind of what the next six months of your life look like. And so if I was just kind of pleading with you, here's what I would say. We're sitting at a coffee shop. I, I would just say this. You are in a city that encourages you to have lots of community but very rarely is it purposeful community. You were very encouraged. I love the city. You were very encouraged to have people kind of in your life, around your life. There's so many activities that you can go and like see bands together and you can join sports leagues together. And those things aren't bad. Like this morning, I had my first practice for a soccer league I joined. It was the first time I played soccer since I was six years old. Like it is the first time I played soccer in over 20 years and I loved it. I had a blast. I will not be able to walk tomorrow, but that's okay. Like I will be there next week and I enjoyed it. But here's the thing. Like even though I love that community and it's a fun community, it's not going to be a community that pushes me to do the one thing Paul is saying I'm supposed to do. And it doesn't mean I leave that or reject that or I'm not a part of that. It just means is I do need to belong and be committed to a community who does help me accomplish this purpose. This is the reason why we push membership. It's not like we're trying to like get something from you. We want something for you. We want you to be committed to a community where you are part of the lifeblood of this church on a weekly basis where we can point you to men, women, say follow them as they follow Jesus Christ because that's probably not going to happen in your job. Like you're boss is probably not telling that to you. And so we want you to be part of this community for that reason. You need that. It helps you kind of be committed. Christianity is not meant to be done in isolation. The second, he says, is this. You need a clear future vision. A clear future vision. He writes this about these opponents. He writes in verse 18, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Now, that's really strong language. And I understand we exist in kind of this hyper-tolerant society where it's like we don't tell anybody that they're wrong, and if we tell them they're wrong, we're unloving. What Paul believed is the most unloving thing to do is to see somebody jacking up their life and say, silent. Stay silent. To see somebody make really bad mistakes and to say, like, your end is destruction, and and to stay silent in the name of tolerance and not wanting to hurt feelings and, oh, I'm so loving. So that's a really unloving thing to do. So as he looks at these opponents, I mean, Paul is so challenging to me in this because a lot of times we exist in the now and we just kind of survive. And I, it's hard for me to kind of think more than a weekend into the future, right? And he, he's like looking years into the future and he's saying, look, like it seems like maybe they're winning right now. It seems like they might even be uh, right right now. It seems like people are following him right now. But I'm looking not at how they've started. I'm looking at how they've finished. And I'm seeing that their end is destruction. Paul was so good. He's so good at this and it challenges us as well to have this clear vision for the future. It's not just about how you start. More importantly, it is about how you finish. And here's the thing. Here's kind of my observation um, is that when I see people make really 
major mistakes in their lives, um, it's usually because they're way too concerned with starting and not concerned enough with finishing. Let me just be super practical. So when I see people make major mistakes, um, like they tend to think week to week, month to month, and maybe even like six months in the future and not six years into the future. So let me just give you a practical example. Um, in our four years of the church, I've seen over and over again really great, young, promising ladies, young ladies who love Jesus, kind of freak out about being single, and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm 25, like, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life, and then, um, you know, all of a sudden, like, this guy who's not going to encourage her faith, and, you know, basically, she gets pushed into a place where it's like, I have to decide, I basically have to decide between my faith in Jesus and the church, or this guy, and it's like, well, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life, so I'm going to go after this guy. Now, when I see that, here's the thing, like, I think, like, if, if, let's say you're in this room right now and you're thinking about, you're kind of put in that same position. I think, like, I'm honest, six weeks from now, even six months from now, like, things will be great. I don't think six months from now you're into destruction. Like, I think you guys are doing butterfly kisses and you guys are, like, laying outside and picnicking and pointing out constellations and looking at clouds like, doesn't that look like a dinosaur eating an ego waffle? Like, isn't that amazing? Like, I have no doubt that, like, you guys will be awesome six months from now. It's, like, six years from now that I'm really concerned because six years from now, the weighty things of life, I mean, are going to start to arise. Like, are you going to give multiple years to a guy who doesn't really want to commit and lead you with excellence? And, like, what happens if he does commit to you? What happens if you do kind of finally guilt him into marrying you, and you guys get married, and you're doing life and marriage and kids, like you're doing the most important things in life apart from kind of having the most important thing in common, like that is a really scary thing for somebody who's seen it from the outside and cares tremendously about you. So I just think what Paul is saying is we need to have a very clear vision for the future and to say as we're making decisions about the way we're running the race of our lives, it's not about tonight, it's not about weekend to weekend. I know all the rap songs say that. I know I sound like an old man, like angry about, you know, MTV. Like there's, I'm just saying, like, you are encouraged to think this way, okay? You are encouraged to think it's all about tonight and that's all that matters. And Paul's saying, no, like you need to think not just about how you start but how you finish clear vision for the future. Third and finally, he says this, is we need to have right worship. He writes this about his opponents. He says, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. You're like, well, what in the world is he talking about? Well, there's kind of a number of perspectives, but I think the one that makes at least the most sense in terms of the light of what Paul has written is his opponents uh, were kind of reverting back to a Jewish way of understanding the world, which is saying that salvation is dependent upon your works. There was all sorts of dietary restrictions. If you ate this, it was good. If you ate this, it was bad. And what Paul's saying is, uh, like, let's draw this out to its logical conclusion. What you're saying uh, is that uh, because you eat certain things or abstain from eating certain things, you will be loved or cursed by God. Do you understand kind of like what, what Paul's saying? is like, do you understand what you're saying? Like your tummy is functioning as God because you're saying like what you put in your tummy has the power to bless or curse you, to grant eternal salvation or eternal damnation. That's a little bit ridiculous. So Paul's kind of firing a shot here. But what he's attacking more than anything is their false worship. This is so important. I, I feel like I don't have enough time to dive into this deeply, but I'll just say this. Is a lot of times when people fall away, um, it seems kind of merely circumstantial. Like it doesn't really fall, fit in my life right now, and this just isn't a good time for us, and things are kind of crazy. I can just imagine back in this context, just like, well, I'm not going to be a part of this church anymore. Like you guys have different dietary restrictions than us. 
You know, like that seems like a perfectly legitimate thing. And what Paul is doing is he's actually calling it out for what he says. Like it's not circumstantial. It's not a circumstance issue. It's not a preference issue. It's not a life stage issue. It is an issue of worship. It's an issue of worship. And again, we, we kind of touched on this earlier, but kind of this idea that we tend to take secondary things and to elevate them to be primary and to take that which is primary, worshiping Jesus Christ and make him secondary. We tend to worship our play and to play at our worship. And Paul's doing is, again, another challenge to say, like, look, like, certain dietary restrictions aren't a bad thing. They're just not the most important thing. And the most important thing in our lives is ultimately what we worship, what we give our time and devotion and energy, what makes us joyful and what crutches us. That is what we worship. And he's saying we are meant to worship Jesus Christ. So he says we need to have that kind of in our lives if we're going to finish with excellence. And then let me read you this kind of final two verses and then we'll be done. He says this, but our, I love this challenge. You probably don't see it at first, but I love it. Um, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I love this because uh, let me hit 21 and then 20. So 21 is kind of contrasting these two ends, right? You got everybody's running a race. Everybody's going one of two directions. Some people are running towards destruction. And then some people are running towards the end being Jesus Christ transforming our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he's like giving a glimpse into what happens for the followers of Jesus after we, after we die. But let me hit 20, give one final challenge, and then we'll pray. But our citizenship is in heaven. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you need to understand that when Paul wrote this, like, that probably doesn't jump out as, like, this particularly, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he said that. But in that day, um, like, Paul writing like that is, is really the reason that he's writing this from prison. Like, you do not, in the Roman Empire, talk about how your citizenship is not in Rome, but is in heaven. He is calling Again, we as the church, not as an institution, not as an event, we as the church as individuals, as people who make up a collective body to be a counterculture. We've talked about this. A city within the city who puts on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what I would just say, and I have to finish this with, is to say that if you are going to run this race following believing with, uh, with excellence, you are going to have to be counterculture, cu- countercultural. You're going to have to be kind of a rebel. Now, that seems a little bit weird because, you know, everybody thinks like, oh, it's the rebellious people who leave Jesus. Like, no, it's not. Like, the vast majority of the people in this city don't believe in Jesus. Like, you know, 95% of people in our city want nothing to do with institutionalized or organized religion. They think this whole thing is hokey. And, but you know what makes you a rebel? You know what makes you countercultural? You know what makes you independent? You know what, you know what makes you rebellious? is belonging to a community, committing deeply to a community, worshiping God rightly, living a life of obedience, you uh, having your priorities in order. Anybody can date bad guys. Anybody can sin wildly. Anybody can think in an earthly way. Anybody can exist for nothing more than money. Anybody can exist for nothing more than influence. Anybody can do that. But it's a countercultural individual who worships Jesus Christ as Lord and lives every day like they actually believe that's true. And so I would just say, like, this is a glorious countercultural. It's a difficult, it's hard, but it's one of those things that's good, and it's right, and it's for your joy.
And so it's why we push you to worship through song and communion and teaching the word. And, and that's what we're going to keep doing, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. Um, I would challenge you as we pray and take communion. Um, let me pray, and then I'll give you a challenge to think about. And, um, and then we'll uh, keep moving forward, doing what it is we're supposed to do. All right, let me pray. God, I thank you so much. Um, that salvation is not the end, but it is the beginning, the beginning into a brand new way of life. And I pray that we would be men and women who live the type of countercultural lives that reflect that we are citizens, not ultimately of this city or of this country or of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. Let our lives be countercultural in that way for the glory of God. And so I would pray that we would do that. And I pray that we would um, understand that we are not saved by our works, but when we are saved by you, we work hard and we run hard and we try to finish with excellence. So let us be men and women who put that on display. We love you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We pray that we continue to do that in this time. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.